Welcome to the New Books Network. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to New Book Network's Central Asian Studies podcast. My name is Luke Anceski, and I am your host today. Uh, Today, it's it's great to have on the show um, Timur Dadabayev, who is the author of Decolonizing Central Asian International Relations Beyond Empire. Uh, Timur, uh, good afternoon to you, and welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, Timur, I'd like to start uh, this interview, as I often do, uh, by uh, asking you uh, about the book from an author perspective. Uh, What kind of um, ideas, what kind of context uh, pushed you to write this book when you decided to embark upon this enterprise? Thank you very much for this question. Um, um, as you know, I've been uh, sort of um, researching the field uh, for um, a number of years, uh, but at the same time, um, you know, there was one development that really uh, sort of um, um, uh, made me reflect on this subject matter, and that is, uh, you know, as we you well know, we run a special program for Central Asian Studies here in Tsukuba University, and we have our masters and PhD students. So for the last 15 years, as I was reading their uh, papers and the, uh, you know, the way they uh, formulate their ideas, I uh, realized that you know, many of what they write, um, uh, to a great extent, uh, um, is um, dominated by the ideas which are um, um, articulated in the West and Russia. And uh, by looking at their bibliography when they write their pieces, you know, I also realized that there seemed to be some kind of hierarchy of knowledge in which they uh, tend to reference and cite uh, Western and Russian sources very uh, um, um, excessively. However, they pay very little attention to the you know, Central Asia-generated um, scholarship, which uh, was a bit um, concerned to me. And um, um, another sort of angle that, you know, really pushes me to uh, think about, you know, ideas which I um, uh, outlined in this book um, um, are referred to the, you know, a great number of international conferences that we have in Central Asia on various, uh, you know, subject matters. But at the same time, what I realized by, uh, you know, watching these conferences and, you know, sometimes by participating is that, you know, these conferences very rarely turn into the forums for the local epistemic community um, to um, have a word or an opinion on um, you know uh, formation of the um, you know forum policies, and very often what we see is um, that you know these um, uh, forums turn into this you know showcases of exchanges between Western Russian scholars and Central Asian governments. So you know I, I believe that you know it is also a part of inherited and largely imposed uh, Soviet tradition to organize these big events as symbols of recognition for these Central Asian uh, countries. However, I feel that you know in this kind of structure we have uh, you know a new generations of uh, Central Asians which are prepared to criticize anything which is local versus very progressive foreign. And I think, you know, this reminds me very much of the, uh, you know, Soviet year, early Soviet years when anything Russian was considered to be very progressive and anything local was considered to be, uh, you know, rather old. And in lo- late Soviet years, we also had this, you know, the same tendency when anything foreign 
um, uh, was considered to be very progressive, and anything Soviet was considered to be, uh, you know, uh, very uh, sort of uh, regressive. And so I feel that you know we are creating another dichotomy where uh, you know we are um, uh, sort of uh, uh, presenting Western and Russian knowledge generation as something which is very progressive, while local knowledge generation is uh, becoming, you know, uh, overlooked. And so that that was the concern that led me to think about what are the major sort of approaches to the, uh, you know, to uh, Central Asian IR, what are the limitations of these IRs, and and book, to some extent, is a response um, of a kind or reflection on, on this phenomenon. Well, uh, of course, it, it, it is great that you, as a Central Asian researcher working in East Asia, have a different perspective from the one that, you know, colleagues uh, like myself, uh, even though I'm, I'm, I'm Western, but not Anglo-Western, uh, or people, you know, like in Washington or in London can have about this. Uh, so the final chapter of the book comes up with uh, 10 points for a full decolonization agenda of the way in which we understand the region. Uh, did you manage to uh, address all the points that you uh, identified as colonial when you started the book? And are these points reflected in the conclusion of the book then? Uh well, you know, I mean, the points that uh, you uh, kindly um, uh, emphasized, I mean, these are, uh, you know, the points that, you know, that I would like to make as, as a message. And, you know, this message is not so much uh, for someone. It's it's really a message, uh, a wake-up call of a kind to the Central Asian local scholarship, but also to myself and, you know, to colleagues in, in the West, you know, who work and, you know, display interest in Central Asia. But, you know, I think, you know, when we think of the book and, you know, the uh, contribution that it um, sort of aims to make to the uh, wider body of, uh, of literature, I would think of it as, you know, on the one hand, this is a call for decolonization. But then, you know, um, as I was uh, um, engaging, uh, you know, different audiences about this book, you know, I get this question about what is decolonization? And how would you define it? And you know, in this particular book, you know, I would you know, I um, outlined that you know, decolonization mainly refers to this, you know, um, deconstructing these colonial ideologies of superiority and privilege of the West and Russia in respect to the region. But at the same time, you know, there is the, another angle to it, and that is, you know, attempt to revitalize local knowledge and approaches and assumptions that we have uh, on the behavior of um, uh, Central Asian states in vis-a-vis uh, -vis their, you know, partners like, you know, Russia, you know, West, China or others, you know. So in that particular sense, you know, uh, this book is, um, you know, calls for decolonization. At the same time, it's the call for indigenization, you know, the, the attempt to revitalize the work. But it's not the call for uh, barricading Central Asia. It's not the call for isolating Central Asia. I think, you know, this is something that many people have problems understanding that, you know, by emphasizing specificity of this particular region, uh, to um, no extent, you know, I am uh, questioning the Western advances in international relations or, you know, I'm uh, rejecting and calling for isolation isolationism, because Central Asia does not suffer from the lack, lack of isolationism, as we all know. Yeah. It's more an attempt to go beyond 
uh, you know, this, you know, colonial uh, structures uh, to the, to the uh, you know, dialogue between different, uh, you know, um, uh, uh, theoretical assumptions, which would help us uh, build a more inclusive IR, which would be reflective of Central Asian, uh, you know, um, contributions. And I feel that, you know, that is lacking. And, you know, the points that you mentioned in the last chapter, these are the points that, you know, that um, uh, would lead us, well, thinking about these points, would lead us to um, a dialogue between what we see Central Asia scholarship and what we see in uh, you know, di- wider disciplinary IR scholarship. And I think you know, that, that's the main message that you know, I, would, I would have uh, you know, for the last chapter. Uh, Timur, you're obviously discussing the, the book with me today and I'm aware that you have a couple of more events uh, either planned or already held to discuss the books. Did you have the time to discuss the content and the idea of the book with Central Asian researchers working in Central Asia? Because, you know, they were the targeted of your, uh, the targets of your argument and were they receptive to that? What kind of local reception did you have? Because some of these pieces have been out for a while now. I mean, do the local scholars, scholarly community uh, agree with your points? Well, I mean, it's it's um, uh, thank you. I mean, this is a very important question because you know, essentially, uh, the uh, you know the success of this book depends on the audience on, on uh, whether you know this book delivers you know the the main ideas properly to the to the audience. And so, you know, we've had several events, and you know, I. Uh, you know, it's very difficult to um, um, generalize about sort of, you know, all the, the, the opinions, but, you know, the, definitely there is a very, you know, I feel that the, there is a strong sort of support in terms of, uh, you know, um, emphasizing the, you know, the ventilation uh, peculiarity and, you know, importance of um, outlining a central, central Asian-ness in, uh, in international relations, you know, definitely there is that. But at the same time, you know, uh, in, in recent event, you know, um, um, just last week, uh, you know, we had this discussion, I had this excellent question about the fact that, you know, although, you know, in this book, I uh, criticize Western um, scholarship, there are many uh, local uh, scholars who subscribe to the uh, you know points which are um, you know uh, made in the Western and Russian scholarship in regards to the to Central Asia, and so the question that you know I got you know out of this was um, uh, you know what would be you know the uh, uh, how would I be analyze that you know and the answer to that um, I see is you know rather uh, trivial in a sense uh, is that you know uh, structure defines mindset and so very often. You know, if, uh, you know, and this is how it happens, you know, the central relations are given ideas and, you know, are taught about how to think about their own region. And so if you look into the literature widely available to them, it's quite paradoxical that, you know, that literature which is published in the region because of the, you know, um, uh, lack of the uh, volumes that they publish in or because in general people are are not so much, um, you know, motivated to publish widely, you know, we really don't have too much in terms of, um, you know, uh, locally produced knowledge. And on the other hand, we do have a lot of uh, studies uh, produced internationally and some of them are excellent, but you would also have, you know, um, uh, some others which would impose these images, and these images then drive uh, policymakers, uh, you know, d- decisions, and they also inform largely the, you know, the um, opinion of uh, those scholars in the field. So I'm not, uh, you know, basic in this book. I'm not suggest- I'm not um, offering. 
um, the way people need to think of Central Asia. I'm just um, uh, proposing the open-ended questions about the paradoxes and um, um, problems of narration that we have in uh, contemporary IR, and I'm sort of inviting my audience to also think about it. So, to me, although this is a book, but you know, it's also you know the, the starting point uh, for the journey um, into this you know inquiry. And it's an inquiry which, you know, a journey which all of us are quite interested in, in seeing you uh, completing. Uh, mm-hmm. So uh, the subtitles of the book, it's Beyond Empire. And I think that the chapter that really goes at the core of this uh, post-imperial analysis is the chapter that looks at nostalgia. Uh, and uh, it, it is uh, it is a great chapter, which obviously manages to uh, bring together both the leader perspective, because you look at Putin, Nazarbayev, and, and Karimov, and then the, the ordinary people uh, perspective on ideas of post post empire and Eurasia and that kind of cooperation in, in that specific part of the world. Mm-hmm. Can you tell our listeners a little bit more about this chapter, which? It's it, mm-hmm. it's it's really enjoyable and greatly readable. Yeah, thank you. Uh, so you know this uh, particular chapter on uh, nostalgia, you know, is a is a you know it deals with this you know phenomenon that we see in Central Asia. That on the one hand, you know, there is a, a you know strive to decolonize and uh, to free um, you know uh, these countries and societies of the Soviet past. But also, you know, you have a, a significant part of the population which still displays uh, the, uh, you know, sort of um, uh, this feeling of nostalgia or, you know, uh, um, a return uh, to the past. And so, in this particular uh, chapter, you know, I make two uh, main uh, sort of um, arguments about this phenomena. On the one hand, uh, you know, I emphasize that, you know, the uh, um, um, points uh, um, uh, or, you know, the manipulation by political leadership to uh, use this nostalgia is one facet that we need to think about, you know, and I I used, uh, you know, several examples, you know, I provided this example of Russia as attempting to mobilize public support for, uh, you know, neo-colonial, well, kind of neo-colonial, uh, you know, ideas beyond this, behind this, you know, Eurasian Union uh, notions when, you know, the, you know, leadership in Russia tries to patronize Central Asia and, you know, sends this, send this message to the general public that, you know, Russia is, uh, you know, defending Central Asia from the Western, uh, you know, threat. And then you have, you know, the uh, hybrid example of Kazakhstan, uh, which is a, a very sort of typical post-colonial product. You know, uh, on the one hand, there is desire for self-identification, uh, uh, but on the other hand, there is this, you know, the uh, burden of uh, Soviet past, which uh, really makes it difficult to uh, self-identify. And then you have, you know, the third um, um, uh, element, which is uh, uh, Karimov's Uzbekistan, uh, and that is completely opposite to what we see in in Russia and Kazakhstan, where you have this you know, nationalist uh, leadership trying to manipulate and you know mobilize public against uh, Russia and uh, you know the anything else affiliated with that. So that that's one angle that I'm I'm, I'm using in that chapter. Another angle is public perception, and so. I'm arguing that, you know, that although, you know, there, there are these, um, you know, attempts by political leadership to manipulate and securitize this notion of um, 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 nostalgia, 
the, the general perception of public is not to operationalize, is not to use uh, nostalgia for policy matters. It's just the matter of their past, and this past is heavily influenced by their present. So in the countries like Kazakhstan, where you have you know, um, economic and social conditions which are much uh, better than um, in other republics and maybe uh, perhaps even in Russia, you have uh, you know, less support for uh, nostalgia and less people uh, longing for the past. Now, in, in countries like uh, um, Uzbekistan or Kyrgyzstan, where the situation in economics is much more uh, difficult and you know, political um, instability also contributed to this, you, know, you have more people um, um, longing for the past. But again, I mean, for this um, general public, this is not something that they want to take into the policy realm. You know, I mean, the, the, we see that generationally, this is the higher, um, you know, uh, age uh, groups which spend the most of their time, and it's very natural for them to feel that way. But you know, it does not necessarily mean that you know this can be or needs to be manipulated. And I think you know, uh, the relevance to this book, to the general topic of this book, is that we have certain ideologies and we have a, a certain uh, you know mindsets which are trying to manipulate and impose certain types of thinking on central asian public which is not necessarily dominant in the society you know it's basically that central asian societies are being told and being sold these ideas by three different types of regimes um, exemplified by Putin, uh, uh, Nazarbayev, and then uh, Karimov. So that was the idea. And you know, I, I find it quite interesting that you know, the, we see this you know, uh, divisions uh, between uh, general public and political leadership. Now, another you know, sort of point which makes it possible is this notion of the sovereignty. You know, uh, you know, the, uh, all of these republics, including Russia, copy-pasted the Western notion of sovereignty, but you know they used it, especially the regimes. They used them in order to uh, securitize this, you know, the, the notion of sovereignty, in order to uh, you know um, uh, personally benefit out of this, you know, um, uh, notion of sovereignty because they um, believe that sovereignty belongs to the government, and so anything government says is going to be. Um, you know, um, um, formulated or shaped within this, you know, uh, boundaries of security. And, uh, you know, by doing so, they're trying to, uh, you know, project and, you know, protect their own uh, personal power. And I think, you know, this is the uh, misuse and abuse of the Western notion of sovereignty. And I think, you know, this is something that calls for a reconsideration of the whole concept of sovereignty and its application in Central Asia. Well, that, that's certainly something which uh, is going to be discussed for long. The, the, this, lat, this latter point that you make, because you got uh, ideas of empire right there in this uh, this concept of sovereignty being interpreted and reinterpreted in different parts of the world. Uh, now, moving on into the the kind of uh, different uh, issues that you treat in the book, uh, Timo, you got the, the, this this couple of chapters that zero in on to Uzbekistan. And Uzbekistan foreign policy in particular, and and they they try to at least, um, well, rediscuss how the Uzbek leadership, the post-Karimov leadership in particular, understands connectivity, which is another Western idea to some extent, if you want, mm -hmm. especially the way in which has been implemented, uh, mm -hmm. and also you know filtered to the China uh, lens, mm -hmm. mm -hmm. but also how they they cooperate with uh, Eurasian and Asian neighbors. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us, please, more about 
how mm. this uh, mm. the, the, these two chapters gel together, but also mm. contribute to, to, to the overall argument of the book. Right. So, the, you know, the w- one uh, point needs to be sort of um, said from the beginning, and that is, you know, the, the major question is, what is, uh, you know, Central Asianness in international relations? You know, what is the contribution of Central Asia to international relations as a discipline? And so, in this particular, you know, book, I argue about, you know, the features of Central Asian international relations from two perspectives. You know, first, I um, um, demonstrate what Central Asia is not. And then I argue what Central Asia is. So in um, arguing what Central Asia is not, I emphasize that Central Asia is not post-Soviet anymore. Central Asia is not stunned generalizable anymore. Central Asia is not rivalry-driven anymore. And Central Asia is not transitional. Central Asia is not Westphalia sovereignty-based. And Central Asia is not, uh, you know, uh, or does not need to be understood in the realm of this great game narrative. Uh, in terms of what Central Asia is, you know, I argue that, you know, Central Asia IR is identity-based and, you know, deeply socially constructed. And, you know, the, you know I emphasize in this book, uh, in Chapter 2, that, you know, the notions of neighborhood are very important uh, for Central Asia. And so chapters which follow, you know, the, the chapter that you refer to, um, um, the uh, you know, foreign policy of Uzbekistan to different powers, and then, you know, we have, you know, this uh, chapter on the manipulation, then we have chapter on uh, Afghanistan and others, you know, they are there to demonstrate how, you know, these notions of the identity-based uh, or, uh, you know, socially constructed international relations in Central Asia work. And so, you know, the, this particular chapter on Uzbekistan, it demonstrates that, you know, countries like uh, Russia, China, they have, or, you know, South Korea or Japan, they have their own, uh, you know, discursive narrative of what is it that they try to uh, do in Central Asia. And, you know, as you correctly point out, uh, you know, th- there is this notion of the um, um, uh, connectivity, and that is uh, hijacked, you know, to some extent by um, uh, China uh, currently, but it's been, uh, yeah, it has been used by uh, EU, it has been used by Japan and other countries. And so, uh, you know, th- there are different uh, meanings that, you know, these countries attribute to this notion, you know, so linguistically it's the same word, but, you know, uh, in, in policy-wise, you know, we actually see that, you know, what they try to achieve um, is uh, rather diverse in terms of the um, um, objectives. Now, countries like Uzbekistan, they also have their own narrative. And so this is what I'm trying to demonstrate. I, I first um, outline what are the narratives of Russia, uh, you know, China, and you know, the South Korea and Japan in, in regards to this you know, to the attempt uh, to define uh, their own sort of um, you know, vision of connectivity. But then I emphasize that countries like Uzbekistan uh, you know, try to reinterpret and then, uh, you know, um, uh, policy-wise, reshape this, you know, uh, uh, notion of connectivity, so that you know, uh, Uzbekistan is not going to be victimized, is not going to be uh, left as a resource base or as um, a just, um, you know, transition route of the, you know, um, infrastructure projects. And so th- that's the message that you know that go through all the chapters, in, in the sense that you know, depending on the perspective, you know, the same thing is going to be, you know. Looked differently, and uh, unfortunately, we don't pay much attention to uh, you know uh, smaller countries like Uzbekistan, and you know then you have Kazakhstan and others, and and their concerns and.
and their visions. And that actually creates the structure that, you know, that narratives of the rivalry and narratives of great game actually dominate, come to dominate because, you know, we only see the narrations and narratives from a bigger place. And, and you know, this book, uh, to some extent, uh, calls uh, for a closer attention and uh, peculiarizing, you know, the Central Asian perspectives because, uh, you know, um, after all, we're talking about Central Asia. You know, I, I'm far from um, ambition um, to, uh, you know, consider, um, um, uh, you know, the, these uh, countries like Uzbekistan and Kyrgyzstan. And, you know, I, I, I don't call for their perspectives to be considered globally. But at least, you know, for their own region, I think it's important to look into what their narrative is and, you know, how they try to, uh, you know, uh, utilize opportunities which are given to them um, uh, through this, you know, global initiatives like connectivity. Well, the, the, this, is, this is really timely also because, and I'm now launching into the, the, the next question, uh, the issue of connectivity between, you know, uh, Uzbekistan and the rest of Asia has been particularly understood by the current government also in relationship when it comes to South Asia. You know, there was a large mm-hmm. conference last year about Central Asia, South Asia connectivity. Uh, and then, uh, of course, the, 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 the U.S. withdrawal happened in, in Afghanistan. And mm-hmm. you had a specific chapter on that, on, mm-hmm. on Afghanistan in the book. Uh, mm-hmm. What kind of um, uh, post-colonial lens Mm-hmm. Uh, were you trying to organize, to sorry, to uh, highlight in mm-hmm. relationship to your uh, observations on Afghanistan? Yeah, uh, it's a you know it's very uh, you know important observation that you made that you know that we are currently facing uh, you know um, a very sort of dynamically changing international sort of uh, um, 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 structure of international affairs in Central Asia. And Uzbekistan is one uh, element. We also have the, you know, the uh, power change in all of these countries. And we also have then, you know, Afghanistan, which is also changing. And so, uh, you know, the landscape, political landscape is, uh, you know, changing drastically. But, you know, what um, um, uh, I see as uh, something that unites all of these countries, including uh, Afghanistan, uh, is that, you know, to a great extent, you know, their current uh, you know, international um, uh, exposure has been um, uh, influenced by the, um, you know, um, great powers and, you know, the past policies. And, you know, the, the subtitle of this book, Beyond Empires, uh, is exactly, uh, is trying to address exactly that point, is that, you know, uh, decolonial and post-colonial C- Central Asia is the one which needs to go beyond empires and i think you know this this point is important is equally important for um, um uh, you know five central asian republics which were uh, once part of the soviet union but also uh, to afghanistan and in terms of um afghanistan again i mean uh, we all know i mean the the, the afghanistan has been uh, victimized by uh, you know uh, well, for uh, a number of uh, centuries now but um you know in the most modern and uh, contemporary history this is soviet, soviet invasion and then uh, the american uh, campaign in afghanistan uh, what uh, uh, strikes me however is that you know very few well you know even in these days you know after the um, american withdrawal from afghanistan there are many conferences many there are many uh, events organized and you know the, the whole discussion 
is not about how do we define what Afghan Afghani you know population wants. You know, it's more about you know the impacts of um, you know U.S. withdrawal. It's more about uh, you know the, uh, the Taliban and U.S. and you know the issues like that. However, you know I, I feel that you know uh, the, the greater paradox or black box is really what do people in Afghanistan at the general sort of public level want? And, uh, you know, we really don't have that discussion. Or in the same sort of uh, manner, you know, we actually don't have uh, the, uh, you know, the uh, narrative of Afghanistan uh, being uh, the, you know, land of opportunities. You know, we continuously for the you know last decades maybe you know have this you know the narrative of um, uh, securitization in respect to um, Afghanistan and I think you know this hurts its uh, you know prospects for development but it also hurts its uh, prospects for cooperation with uh, you know uh, with Central Asian neighbors. Now in my book. I argued, you know, I, I've got this question once asked, you know, last week, whether I believe that in you know, Afghanistan and Central Asia belong to the same region, and uh, you know, to be frank, I, you know, I don't have answer to that. But uh, you know, uh, the answer that I have, and this is what I argue in my book, is that uh, you know there is this notion of neighborhood, and it's very important, uh, you know, notion for Central Asians, but also for Af- uh, you know the um, Afghanistan, and what we see uh, currently. Uh, in the Russian, in the American, or you know, Western discourses in respect to Afghanistan, or, you know, very often has this implication of securitization. You know, you know, there is this talk about how do we contain the threat from Afghanistan to other countries and stuff. But if you look into uh, discourses in Central Asia, of course, you know, we cannot say there is one discourse. You know, you would have Tajikistan, which is you know very strongly opposed to the you know Talibs, and then you have Uzbekistan, which is uh, you know trying to functionalize its relations with uh, with uh, Afghanistan. So we do have. Uh, different uh, discourses in Central Asia as well. But what I feel is that, you know, the Central Asian discourses uh, on Afghanistan are driven by the fact that, uh, you know, Central Asian governments do realize they're interconnected uh, with um, Afghanistan. So their future, to a great extent, depends on the future of Afghanistan. While, you know, uh, countries like Russia, um, uh, you know, US or, you know, the European Union, for them, uh, uh, Afghanistan is rather... The you know the humanitarian issue which needs to be dealt with, uh, or human rights issue uh, which needs to be dealt with, but it's not the existential uh, you know issue uh, that um, would sort of uh, question the ex- very existence of this country. So in that particular sense, I, I feel that you know the impact of empires you know in, in Central Asia, this is the Soviet empires, or you know, and uh, in um, uh, Afghanistan, this is you know all, all kind of influences. They do make uh, you know, a, a, a profound impact on the future of these, uh, you know, countries. And, uh, you know, in my book, I argue that, you know, it's only the regional approach and, you know, regional consolidation, uh, uh, which uh, is perhaps the, the way out, or at least, you know, it needs to be part of the, you know, uh, resolution of the problem. Uh, what kind of format needs to be decided, not by Russia, not by uh, China, not by, you know, United States, but by these regional countries and Afghanistan itself. Okay, well, that, that's something which is going to be discussed for, for a very, very long time. Uh, Timo, the, the final question, I want to return to um, the wider contribution that your book makes to our community of Central Asian Studies scholars. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
what do you think should be the main ideas that future researchers interested in similar topics uh, mm-hmm. would like to pick up from your book? What are the, the one, two key points which you would like future mm-hmm. literature, future literature to, uh, mm-hmm. to treat more consistently? So, you know, I mean, this um, do refer to the points of um, um, novelty of this work and, you know, the, the contribution. Uh, you know, um, um, I wouldn't um, uh, claim that, you know, that we don't have, you know, the studies which attempt to um, uh, draw attention to, uh, you know, uh, Central Asian politics uh, and, you know, how Central Asia regards, you know, these issues. You know, there are a number of studies that, you know, that, uh, you know, have been uh, developed uh, both in the region and outside of it. You know, we do have, you know, the, you know, the studies on sovereignty by, you know, um, uh, Mohira Surai Kulova. We do have uh, studies which attempt to uh, theorize on IR by, uh, you know, Rico Isaacs and uh, Frigerio. Uh, there are many studies which uh, focus on securitization and Nick Megorans and Sharipovas and, you know, also John Heather shows. Also, you know, well, there are many studies actually. Uh, uh, but, you know, my own, uh, you know, uh, the contribution, the way I see it at least, and, you know, the, the way I uh, positioned it, you know, within this book, relate to the point that, you know, firstly, my inquiry, uh, you know, calls upon the central a place of Central Asian voices, narratives, and visions. So um, I um, think that, you know, any kind of um, theorization of, um, you know, Central Asia needs to start from Central Asia, not the other way around. Uh, The second point is that, you know, um, uh, very often uh, when uh, Central Asian IR uh, are depicted, you know, we have this, you know, positivist um, uh, depiction uh, as a static uh, you know, a st- um, um, sort of um, structure affairs, you know, uh, when people would say that, you know, this is uh, the rivalry between, uh, you know, China and Russia or rivalry between, you know, US and other countries. There is this, you know, statism, you know, the, the snapshot that, you know, which is provided, it, um, um, uh, I feel that, you know, there is an, an attempt to fix this uh, image and then sort of um, um, generalize upon it. In my own study, I emphasize that, you know, the, uh, you know, the, uh, the kind of this structure of Central Asian IR is non-static. It's in a continuous process of social construction. Uh, And, you know, this social construction is heavily influenced by these notions of the imaginaries, you know, and, you know, we have Central Asian imaginaries of self, but we also have imaginaries of uh, Russia, we have imaginaries of West, we have imaginaries of China, uh, and, you know, other countries. So, you know, to a great extent, you know, the um, you know Central Asian IR is this you know um, area where these different imaginaries come together, and so you know uh, the, the important part of, part of of the inquiry would be to account for these imaginaries. If we don't know what, how each of these players imagines self and you know Central Asian other, and we, if we don't account for Central Asian imaginaries, then it's very difficult to actually make any kind of assumptions about you know the structure uh, and the purpose of the, of these uh, you know countries uh, in the region. And finally, the third point that you know in, in terms of my contribution, I do emphasize uh, you know um, uh, equal the importance of the equal. Um, uh, representation and treatment of Central Asian agency. Now, the natural sort of um, um, reaction would be, well, you know, isn't it obvious? You know, isn't it, uh, you know, um, something that needs to be taken for granted that Central Asian countries do have agency and, you know, they need to be uh, treated equally. But, you know, from 
majority uh, of uh, you know positivist literature which currently dominates international relations we see that you know the great powers their interests and you know their uh, you know perceptions do dominate uh, you know the discussions about you know the structure of international relations and you know the, uh, the importance of smaller uh, countries like uh, you know central asian countries uh, uh, always um, downplayed you know to the extent that you know um, unless you really um, pose this question about their importance no would uh, would really uh, sort of take that up as the you know as part of the inquiry into the uh, general structure of international relations in Central Asia. So that would be the, you know the third point that you know that um, you know we cannot do enough uh, to um, emphasize the equal agency and the way Central Asian countries display their agency. Because you know one one uh, sort of in, uh, question that I often get is that you know why is it that Central Asian states themselves do not openly state their objection to, you know, these bigger powers and, you know, their own vision. But again, I mean, this has to do with the, you know, different pattern of signaling that, you know, that exists in Central Asia. You know, you would rarely see uh, Central Asians uh, openly questioning or openly, uh, you know, counterposing their own position. And that is defined by their geography, by their history, and by their culture. And, you know, that, that's the part that I emphasize in my work by suggesting that, you know, Central Asian IR is not, uh, you know, positivist in the sense that it's not driven by the, uh, you know, um, uh, strategic calculation. It's more driven by its identity. And, you know, this identity aspect is, uh, I believe, uh, the contribution of this work to the general discussion of um, IR. Well, Timu, uh, thanks a lot, uh, not only for your time, but also for your book, which is going to be uh, be- very, very interesting, not only for the general reader or for, the, for our community researchers, but also for our students who are much. more and more interested in this kind of post-colonial argument when it comes to, to Central Asia and, in general, international relations of Asia widely defined. So congratulations again. uh, Thank you very much, Luke. It was a pleasure to be here. Thanks again for, for having been with us today on the show. Goodbye. Thank you. Bye.